0: Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we're diving into the world of product-led growth and user onboarding strategies with special guest, Adam Jarzan, who's a senior director of product and digital health at PC Health and a valued venture partner at Ripple Ventures. Adam brings a wealth of experience into the product and go-to-market strategies for early stage startups and offers unique insights that help founders to scale revenue and retention. In our conversation, we discuss a wide range of topics, including scoping and discovery on core features that drive significant gains without losing sight of the product's vision. We also discuss decision velocity and how to cultivate a culture that values quick and smaller decisions. We also dive into how urgency shapes PLG strategies and user experiences, and how tailoring your company's onboarding experience can help address some of the most common PLG challenges. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Adam Jarzan from PC Health. All right. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Adam.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: Adam, we've known each other for a little bit now, and we've been very lucky to have you alongside working as a venture partner for us at Ripple. But for some of our listeners who don't know you very well, it'd be great to get a quick background on yourself, your various roles in and around the product and go-to-market motions over the last few years.
1: So I like to characterize myself as like some, you know, product turn operations turn more go to market recently. I've been in tech for 10, 12 years, started as a founder, building my own business, very product centric CEO, really couldn't tell you if I was good at it or not, though. But like, you know, first eight years ish of my career was in product and went to an um, had an exit earlier, early in my career, which is pretty cool. Joined another startup uh, to lead product, but then moved quickly into like operational type roles, which was really interesting. Uh, After that, I went to Shopify, where I moved into way more go to market centric work. Uh, So I was leading solution engineering and user onboarding for the retail segment at Shopify. And then when I left, came out of Shopify, I got really into continuing down the path of user onboarding, not realizing that user onboarding had this thing called PLG around it. And so that's what ended up taking me into this like trend and this category of product-led growth. And it was just this really interesting, I think at that point in my career, I had the intersection of product experience, operations experience, and then go-to-market experience. And now like my view of like how to do the product function is just so different. Uh so I just feel way more equipped now than I did, you know, 5 8 years ago.
0: Yeah, being a first-time founder, uh you know, you probably didn't think about that at all. Um there were so many other fires to put out, but when you got to have the space to learn about product and product like growth strategies at, you know, Shopify, it must have been an eye-opening experience.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I think if I as I reflect on my my time being a first-time founder, I think there's, there's something like in my reflection, there's something weird where I felt like I needed to know the answers to all the questions. I would not say I was a curious person. I felt I needed to know everything. I felt the only way to know anything was to just like have an opinion on something that like, wasn't rooted in much like rooted in my own observations, but like, there's so much bias to my observations. There's like very few data points to my observations relative to like what I can learn by talking to other people. So I just didn't you know I was just learning by doing which i think is an amazing way to learn but if you're not also learning by watching other people do smart things or watching other people make mistakes like you just you actually don't learn as fast i these are things i only picked up in re- reflection you know i wish i had known that stuff you know 10 years ago when i really started my career being at shopify is just a different beast i think there i remember within the first 5 months of being there I thought, like, there's something really different happening here than anywhere else in my previous career moments. And the only thing, the thing that I picked up there, and I think that was just a microcosm of the team I was just on there, is like, everyone was so capable and so good at their their thing that there was no spinning tires. It was just like, we had a thing, we saw a problem, we went and solved the problem. It usually got solved pretty quickly. And like, that momentum was just like nothing I'd ever experienced before. How that stuck with me is I've I've acquired this kind of new framework, mental framework of like, how to manage to growth versus how to manage to capacity. And like, that's a major learning I took from my time at Shopify. Understanding the distinction. I don't expect that other people know what that means without me explaining it. But like, it's just a whole new way in which I am lo- I think about go-to-market product and like all these things. So I definitely have my time at Shopify to thank for that.
0: Well, can you give us some maybe examples of like where you know you were doing some scoping work and you thought about like the problems you guys had to solve and how you guys were able to get them done faster without compromising on any sort of like things that were asked of you?
1: I would not say there's been a situation I've been in where I'm not making compromises. Shopify is a good example of this, but I I don't necessarily I wouldn't necessarily root that all the examples are you know, that only Shopify is a place where you could do this, but I think like it's very environment centric. Can I, do I have the actual like autonomy to solve the problems I want to solve? I think like I've definitely been in environments where I didn't. And so it's like, I can solve it as long as I do it the way my boss tells me to. I think like Shopify was a place where you did have autonomy, which is like, we're giving you a problem. You solve it the way you think you need to solve it. Yeah. You get feedback and stuff, but like you do have the creative freedom and i think like that's what true autonomy is about it's like i actually have as much or as little creative space as i want to solve a problem and i think the other thing is like we didn't have to boil the ocean on all the problems it's just like seeing that I, we could chip away at it and like the momentum that comes from taking a big problem and saying like how do i solve just a piece of it now take that win and use that as momentum to solve the next piece and the next piece so you know i think shopify was an interesting moment where i could just iterate through how i solve problems you know i started with like Hey, what's a really low level of effort, low fidelity way I could solve a problem? And if I put the right measures around it and see that there's signs of life there, then I can go and justify investment in doing something like with medium fidelity. So an example of that is, hey, you know, we saw this problem in onboarding, user onboarding. Our instinct was we were going to solve it by like getting on the phones and talking to as many merchants as we could you know, a bunch of themes emerged around those problems. And we said, okay, how would we more scalably solve that problem? Okay, we're going to build videos and we're going to send those videos out to merchants after they, after they sign up. And we're going to try to, we're going to monitor whether those merchants are getting up and running and transacting Shopify just by giving them videos. And then we thought, okay, like let's add webinars. And like, we just started like adding more things when we saw that, like a, we could measure and B we saw progress because I had the autonomy to just, okay, how do you want to solve it? And I could say, hey, I'm going to solve it in this really low fidelity way first. And then here's how I'm thinking about if there are signs of life that I'll make it more high fidelity, we could do that. So we ended up having, you know, on the back of that, we ended up building out these like long like cadences within tools like Sales Loft. We ended up building out like dedicated programs that solve for very specific cases, very specific problems that are very large for merchants who are trying to get up and running on Shopify. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like the autonomy was the thing that let me do it. And like not being overly complicated on things like scope creep is bad.
0: Yeah, I was going to say a lot of founders, like they obviously pitch, you know, investors and VCs on this big, broad vision of what they're going to try and build and solve for. But, you know, that comes with like this high fidelity, you know, mockups, essentially. And when it comes to the reality of like going through the scope and discovery of solving the problem that needs to be solved today you realize that like a very simple, low-fidelity example of it can be done. Solve just enough of you to get a wedge into that customer base and then really transform and build up market afterwards. But you know, you you also have had senior product roles at Coho while leading their Instant Pay program, and now you're a senior product manager at PC Health. So you've done a lot in the product and uh, obviously go to market space, but today's topic is going to be around product-led growth and user onboarding strategies really to scale revenue and retention for early stage companies. So look, first off, let's talk about that scope and discovery angle. Can you share some examples of how like scoping and discovering what the potential problems and solutions can be were done the right way in your later parts of your career where you made a lot of mistakes early on that you now look back on and be like, those are stupid as hell?
1: Earlier in my career as a product person, like it just the best idea wins. Like, it's not rooted in observation. It's like, I have an idea. I think it solves this problem. We should build it. As a product person, you're given this like really special like trump card. It's like the business saying, dear product person, we think you are in the best position to make decisions of what we should build. The responsibility to hold that card is very high. And now, like at the time, I didn't understand that. I was just like, okay, I get to make the decisions. I should just build my ideas. I get to win because I'm the decision maker. Now I hold that trump trump card with a level of responsibility that my goal is never to have to use it. And the distinction there is, I want to root everything in like much more observation or hypothesis testing so that it's not a battle of ideas. Uh, so like the way that shows up, for example, uh, at Shoppers, when I first joined there, there definitely was a battle of ideas moment. How I wanted to shift our thoughts is like, okay, you have an idea, great. What problem is happening in the life of the user that's leading you to feel like this is an idea we should, we solving for. And I was basically just trying to walk people back onto like more first principles of why this idea what's the thing you think users are, are struggling with and then i to de- to like disconnect them from their idea and get them more excited about the problem i would go through this kind of logic of like what's the problem what's the current workaround so like how are users or people solving that problem today and what's the issue with the current workaround and typically what happens is you find that the problem isn't the original problem statement the problem is the gap and so the gap between the current workaround and the issue with the current workaround. And then we basically cycle through that a couple times. So it's like, okay, so what's the problem? The issue with the current workaround, is that the problem? It's like, no, we solve that differently. Okay, so what's the issue with that gap? And you, you go through that like one or two cycles and you actually end up at like the real problem statement. And then I work with teams to say, what are three to five ways we could solve that problem? I want one that's low fidelity, that like doesn't scale and is ugly, but could work. I want one that's like medium fidelity, something that would be a little bit of investment, probably scales better, but like lots of like unknowns as to whether it would work. And then like, what's a really high fidelity, super complicated way that we can solve that problem. And then I just try to push everyone to the low fidelity one and and gracefully convince people that low fidelity is better. I think where what, I under, what I've what i come to understand about solving prob- problems as a product person is product is the slowest, most expensive way to solve a problem. So I want to have the smallest scope possible and the the simplest way to solve something if I'm going to solve it in technology. And I'd rather actually solve it in like marketing. I'd rather solve it with like human-led solutions or at least in the low fidelity space because I'm trying to get signs of life that justify... The next investment to a medium or high fidelity solution, which may be through product. I know I didn't give you a specific example in there, but like, there's a lot of like mental frameworks that I'm using to think about this.
0: No, those are great examples. It's interesting to hear you say like the product is the most expensive way to solve a problem, and it's so true because what you're saying is like product is like the big elephant that you're trying to like move around, but then you got to layer in sales and marketing. To help basically push that out there and get the messaging right, and then you got to get like customer support to make sure they get it all, you know, right, so that everybody is working together around this big clunky product that could be totally wrong. And you're right; it could be done through something low fidelity, like just creating a small little onboarding video, or you know, adding a quick little like FAQ page, uh, where you you know send out some updates and things like that, or just an email update. You know, it's interesting though because in technology, especially early stage companies and young founders. They always are looking for a problem that fits a solution they've already built in their head, and they basically committed to in their head, and maybe to investors. Everyone has that. So, how do you think you can break that? Is that a cultural thing? You know, how should people like you, given the experience you've had, you you did the opposite. You basically went started as a founder and then had to go back to the beginning of being a product builder and, and learner. How do you think young entrepreneurs should think about product? and solving very low-fidelity problems first and not getting too out of their skis when they're building their first products. When I
1: started as an entrepreneur, I had an idea. There's the same problem I try to coach people right now. I had an idea, I got obsessed with the idea, and then I tried to find what problem that idea could solve for. Now I'm, I'm much more, And like, you know, you'll read this, you'll go on LinkedIn, someone will be like, you know, be obsessed with the problem, not the solution. But like, how do you train someone to think that way? Like for me, I've just been burned so many times about about being excited about my ideas and them not working to realize that like, I just have to care less about my ideas. I have to care less that like the world to, to solve problems the way I think I need to solve them. Like I care more about progress. I care more about like, I actually care a lot more right now about like, how would we measure that the thing we just shipped works? And then I don't care how you solve it. I just care that you can point to a report or point to a metric and say like that measure moved. And then also encouraging teams to be like more bold in what they think they can ship but when i talk to teams their their default is like okay but how would we do that scalably like they're already in this place like how do we do this operationally how do we do it scalably what if we had a thousand people doing it for early people who are earlier in their careers doing this thing they haven't gone through they haven't gone through what it feels like to do one or two or three iterations of a thing they they only have this vision for the future and and like there's just a discomfort about recognizing that like I like to say like in order to become 10 years old, you had to have been nine years old and you had to have been eight years old and you had to have been seven years old. Like all those milestones had to happen to become 10 years old. Like I think of product in the same way, like to become, have a really sophisticated, really mature product. You just have to grow up into it. It's rare that you launch the first thing and it is this like blockbuster. So, you know, I think the coaching is to encourage folks earlier, let's say in their career, one it's like. Hey, I really like your idea. What are four more? Give me four more of your ideas and have them battle their own ideas, at least it's theirs. And then secondary is encouraging them to say, like, how might you get that idea to market faster? So like at Shoppers, what I talk to my teams about is you all have great ideas. I want to see more of your ideas in market, not not less. So if you can't scale back your idea and de-scope and make it less complex, you don't get more of your ideas in the market. And getting your ideas in the market is like kind of the fun part of being a product person.
0: Yeah. What we tell our founders is you got to go slow to go fast. And we don't actually want you to sell anything within the first six months. We just want you to listen and collect as much feedback as you can from potential customers or design partners. Before you put any sort of framework around building a product. It's kind of like investing, you know, like Warren Buffett says, you know, nobody wants to get rich slowly, right? And that's <laughs> no. the biggest problem. They don't want to lose weight. And so everybody, in, nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, time is money, as they say. Mm-hmm. And so everyone from product builders to entrepreneurs to investors, everyone wanna do the, the thing as fast as possible. But that's not necessarily what the customers and the eventual, you know, clients want necessarily. And so it's almost like uh, in my world of being a VC, the reason why you end up having these like good results in your later funds is because it's succession bias, right? Like, you know, survivor bias. I mean, like only the ones that survived the first two, three or four funds end up making it to that four or fifth or sixth fund. And that's because they waited and played and they got through the hard parts and then eventually got the support uh, from institutionals and things like that. So it's it happens at all walks in life. But I, I want to get your thoughts on sort of applying this framework to the product-led growth mindset because that's something that a lot of companies have been like trying to incorporate. One, because you've got, you know, expensive salespeople you don't necessarily want to pay for, you can do it and iterate faster. So the feedback loop is quite significant from where it is in in traditional like outbound sales motions, let's say, or enterprise sales motions, and discovering the pain points in the product come back pretty quickly. So Talk to us about how you think about product-led growth from like a startup mindset and how do you know if it's even right for you?
1: I think there's a big misunderstanding of what product-led growth is. And like, I'll preface that by saying like, you know, these are my ideas. This is how like it fits here. This is how it fits in my mental model. I believe there's a misunderstanding of what product-led growth is supposed is about. Most companies, when I talk to them about product-led growth, they lead with operational and scalable they're excited about those two factors like we can move we can be more scalable and it's lower cost to deliver a product-led growth motion they start with what's in it for them i believe that product-led growth is a strategy in response to a buyer behavior. If I go, like if I wanted to the mall and I wanted to like buy my sweater, there's store number one sells this sweater. Now let's say when I want to go and buy this sweater, there's someone at the front door of that store that says like, hey, Adam, you can come buy that sweater, but I need to hold your hand in the store the whole time. Now next to it is a similar store, sells the same set and the same type of sweater. And that store lets me just come in and I can try stuff on and go in a fitting room and like no one holds my hand. You know some people may want to have their hand held to buy a sweater some people may not I will say in my case like I don't want someone to hold my hand to buy the sweater product led growth is a response to a buyer behavior that says like I want to buy the sweater without holding anyone's hand that only happens in the market if you have a product where you're either your either your hypothesis is people want to buy this on their own, or there's data that's telling you people want to buy it on their own. The first store cannot sell me this sweater if the way I want to buy the sweater is by myself. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't salespeople in that store. It doesn't mean there's not like people helping me like find a new size of sweater. All those things are there. But if you don't let me come in the store and look around on my own, I'm just not going to come in your store. So the product-led growth opportunity is like, what do you know about your users? Or is there an emerging new market that says, I won't buy your product if you don't let me buy it the way I want? That's the starting point. Yes, there's a lot of operational efficiency and there's a lot of like scalability that comes at the end of like a really good product-led growth program. Got to start there.
0: You're forgetting one, uh, one more example. It's There's one store, the third store only lets you come in. Uh, when you give your name at the door, there's no other shirts (laughs) to sign on. There's no other shirts to try on. There's just one sweater, but nobody, you know, uh, watches you. You only get to try it on once. There's no mirrors. And on your way out, you have to fill out a survey on an iPad.
1: There there could be a good trade-off there. It's like, Hey, I bought the sweater. I'm really happy about it. I'm happy to give you the survey. But I, I think the essence of the, of the analogy you've got dead on.
0: That's the thing that I think we as a, as a sort of tech culture have thought about as being what our customers to want is what you're saying, which is not what, and that's why you have to go slow to understand the customers, you know, understanding why they like to actually hold people's hand and, you know, why they feel that that other model is not for them. So continue down that sort of vein, I think, as we've now realized the differences between them and the difficulties and understanding feedbacks.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll expand a bit on like how that analogy expands into like how people should, like how I think. Building a product growth program and like other just misconceptions. So, like a lot of times, teams think like product led growth means like product does everything. Basically, no humans touch users. I mean, ma- not really. I don't, I just, I don't think that's practical and I don't think that's actually good for users. At the end of the day, a user or a customer of your product is going to get stuck somewhere with your product. Your goal is to find the fastest way to unstick them. And there's three ways you can unstick them. You can unstick them by making the product better. You can unstick them by like messaging to them, marketing, in-product guidance, all that stuff. Or you can unstick them by deploying humans. So, you you know, hey, Adam, I noticed you're stuck. Let's grab 15 minutes and like talk to me and I'll help unstick you. Human-led is arguably more expensive, not as scalable, but it may be the most effective way to unstick your users. Whereas like product is like the longest lead time, the most expensive. And if you get it wrong... Um, you go back to the drawing board and you start again. So a balance between what is the, what is the job that product is going to solve for when users get stuck? Cause they're going to get stuck. It's hundred percent. It's a reality. What is the, what is the thing that we think product will be really effective at? What are the things we think marketing is going to be really effective at? And what are the things we think humans are going to be really effective at? You figure that out first, then you figure out how to scale the human. But if you start at with, I don't want to put humans in cause it's not scalable, you're, you're missing out on a ton of opportunity, especially if you think of like support organizations or say, or CS organizations, every company I've talked to, if I talk to a support leader or a sales CS leader, and I say, what are the top two or three themes or reasons you hear people talking to you? They always know. But if you go pure product only, and you're a team that just l- believes in like, I'm going to perfectly instrument my product with mixed panel, and I'm going to look at data it's going to answer all questions. Yeah. You're going to see there's a portion of your funnel where there's 30% drop off. But when you say why is there 30% drop off, you have you are very low on context. You're very low on like qualitatively why is there drop off there. That's where human touches are amazing. So like what I love about, you know, organizations that have like a good balance of human led, product led and marketing led is you start at the CS organization, you say what are the top two or three reasons people contact you every day. They tell you those, they give you the full context because they're having the conversations. Then the product team can say like okay, how would I untangle that and start making changes in the product to address that, where my actual measure is whether CS stops hearing about this problem or not.
0: It's almost like the, the human in the loop is the good thing here, uh, where the word product-led growth is like, you know, the, the the holy grail. Teams have this emotional attachment to these product-led growth cycles, and they feel like almost a negative reaction, a negative emotional reaction to human in the loop, product-led growth cycles. How do you recommend? Early stage teams deal with the ability to put te- uh, like humans in and out and pull them out when trying to solve these you know, problems, maybe in a low fidelity scenario.
1: Like, tactically, how do you get the human in front of the user?
0: Yeah, exactly. When you committed maybe to product like growth initially.
1: So, the, the first thing is I think like early stage companies, that is a competitive advantage in the market, is like you're having a very strong appetite for talking to
0: as many users as possible and finding as many ways to do it couldn't agree more it's like founder-led sales right why we all want companies to have founder-led sales for a while maybe even till the series a because the feedback loop all is so much more valuable instead of going through three layers of you know employees
1: like i don't know if this is good you know let's say growth advice but like there's just this instinct that you have to grow up too fast it's like we don't have time to talk to users we're too busy building The advantage you have is that you, one is like, you probably have very few users, which means like you can put your arms around them pretty easily. It's like, if I have, you know, 10 or 20 users using my software, there's literally zero reason why I don't have a personal relationship with those people. These are the advantages of being early stage. It's not a disadvantage because once you get up to like hundreds or thousands, then you start having scale, scalability and cost discussions of which it's like, okay, I'm going to implement a voice of a customer program that's going to talk to users and bring me feedback and like... You know, if I had a dollar for every product manager I talk to who doesn't talk to you, talk to their users, I would have a lot of dollars. So like early stage companies just like have a huge advantage of putting humans in front of users. How you get in front of them is like you ask a lot. If you want to implement like a chat, um, if you collect, if you're collecting email, like there's zero reason that you're not contacting them and saying like, hey, we're new. Like we want to learn more from you. You just got like, it's actually, I don't think it's hard. You just, it, you just have to do it. Like there's nothing complicated about it.
0: You know, I, it's interesting because now is so much better like AI transcription and call recording software and things like that. I remember like with our first startup, we didn't have product people on customer calls, listening to them, being in person at meetings. Like when we started having product people joining customer meetings and being there as part of like the process of either onboarding or expanding an account, the feedback loop was just so much faster and the actual logic for why sales is requesting these feature enhancements or this change in the product made so much more sense it is also a problem with too much data coming at them in the product role and ensuring that they're basically prioritizing the right stuff what advice do you have for product leaders or even early stage founders in ensuring that the data that they're collecting from like the feedback and stuff and tools maybe to use are capturing the right user interactions and feedback
1: i believe based on what like company again This is just the pattern I see. Pattern I see is there is, for some reason, this very high standard of like instrumentation and data sufficiency that I think companies try to get to. And until they get there, they just are like, we don't collect enough data to make decisions on data. We need to instrument mix panel. It needs to be to like the nth degree of its sophistication for us to make decisions. I am a very data focused person. I'm very data curious. Like I want data to be, you know, it's 50% gut, 50% data for me. Like that's a good balance, but I think where teams are challenged is that they put data on a pedestal and they're like, if I don't have an infinite amount of data, then I can't make decisions. And I actually encourage teams to like do less three years from now, I expect you to have a really robust and comprehensive implementation of like AppQ or like amplitude or Mixpanel. Let's say if we're talking about like, you know, just a reference point to like a piece of software that people use to help make data informed decisions. Stage one is just like, do you have a simple view of the funnel? Like, you don't, don't kill yourself on it. I just need to know, like, how many users show up on my website? How many people start the sign-up? How many people finish the sign-up? How many people go on and do, like, a critical product interaction? Don't boil the ocean there. Look at that funnel. Monitor it week over week. I think, like, what people don't do well is they don't do the cohort analysis. So it's like, yeah, I'm, every week, show me the users who signed up this week and what they did. Then the next week, the users who signed up that week and what they did. And compare that. Those are the things you need to look at. It's like, oh, we see that the trend is the same. Okay, great. Your product is repeatable. Uh, You don't see the trend is the same then the product is not repeatable and there's something broken in there. But start with like really simple stuff and then get curious. It's like, oh, there's a 40% drop off here. Why? Let's go tackle that for the next six months. We need to add more data in that part of the funnel because we don't know we're blind. Do it as your curiosity takes you around the product instead of this, like the whole product needs to be fully comprehensively covered in, in implementation of mixed panel before I even ask any data questions. That is a very messy, scary place. And like, it's an easy, it's easy to get distracted with, you know, too many data points and like just purely analysis paralysis at that point.
0: Are you saying like, wait before you rip and replace kind of like what you initially thought was your hypothesis until you've collected enough data? Like, if you're seeing your initial conversions, let's just say being below expectations, what are you advising teams to do in that scenario? Like they should be on top of this every day, every week. It depends on volume.
1: If you're low volume, you don't, you don't have to be as fanatical about it, let's say, in terms of like how, how your cadence of how, you, of how often you look at data. Low volume, meaning let, let's say, you know, less than, like less than 10 or 20 customers or signups a week, let's say. But once you're hitting like 30 a week, you should be looking at the data. Like you should have a dashboard that you're looking at. You know, at least weekly, at very minimum weekly. How you set up that dashboard is actually more important than how comprehensive you are collecting data. So when I say comprehensive collecting data, it's like imagine a tool where like every button click you want to track. That's like comprehensive coverage. If you're not building dashboards that help you to digest all that data, then like the data itself is not helping you. Often I recommend it's like. How would you visualize to yourself that this, that this is working and then instrument so that you can build the dashboard. All that will happen is the dashboard is going to show you some stuff that you're going to get curious and go down, go deeper into like a piece of the funnel. And then you'll go instrument again so that you can get the information out that you need. But you'll start from a perspective of like, how would I visualize the data? I just encourage teams to look at it weekly.
0: But I struggle with that though. Like I struggle with like looking at these low user interactions or utilization dashboards and then question is this even a product issue or a market fit issue with regards to like how we're even messaging this to the the users? Like you said, like maybe there's a low fidelity way that you know the product is not even re- requiring to solve, but something we can do if we just have more humans kind of talking and validating. What do you just? What do you suggest you know teams do in that scenario?
1: If you've got a very like low fidelity funnel, like I, I was putting something together for someone literally this week, and they gave me their mix panel, I looked into am Like I was able to assemble a very low fidelity funnel, similar like how many people sign, like hit the website, how many people signed up, how many completed the sign up process, like just super simple. Like their first step, there's like ninety three percent drop off at that step, and let's assume that the data was correct and I created the funnel like sufficiently. So, what's happening there like I would encourage teams like look at that stage in the process like that step in the process go like open your software and like look at like okay what's happening here typically it's a it's a positioning or value prop related challenge it's like I'm going to buy i'm I'm spending a bunch of money in like let's say uh, acquiring users through Google ads my value prop in the market is x they're coming to my website and like I'm not communicating to them the thing that I told them in the ad. So I could tell them like, Hey, come to my software. I'm going to help you schedule appointments really easily. And then the value prop on the website is like how to get more revenue. For example, that disconnect in the marketing message is a huge reason why there could be that drop off uh, and the funnel. So I, I, I would say the balance is like the data and the insight is for everyone and, hey, how would we solve this? Like the same thing I described before. Like how would, how would we solve this in product? How would we solve it in marketing? How would we solve it? How would we solve it with humans? And like go through that creative space because like what will probably emerge is like a really low fidelity, fast way to solve it that like isn't product. Uh, and again, like product is like the most expensive way.
0: It sounds like you're for cross-functional collaboration to make sure there's alignment between like product sales, marketing, things like that. But how do you think about giving too much weighting to different groups when they have different end goals is it all come back to like why every company should have a north star metric which we firmly believe at ripple no matter how early the company is like walk me through that because like you said you have this trump card in product that you rarely want to use it but there may become a time where sales and marketing are just like constantly battling like no these aren't qualified leads it's the product's fault these aren't converting or it's the success fault that they can't help solve easy problems that they just had to figure out this one problem and their customer success, you know, I don't know, responds to time or something. How do you think about that? Like
1: product is just a tool that I have access to. There's a team of engineers and a designer and like they build, they write code and they ship software. It's just like a tool. Shipping is not the goal. User outcomes is the goal. So if you think as a product person, first, I want to encourage folks to like not think exclusively in the only tool I have in my tool belt is an engineering team. I believe that good product people think multidisciplinary and they're thinking how, like if I'm really good at understanding the user and the problems they face, and I know that product is one tool, what are the other tools? They may be in my adjacent teams and all the teams should be tied together to solving a set of user problems of which you've probably put some KPIs or some OKRs around. Whether there's three of those that ladder up into one North Star, very pro multi, like multidisciplinary approach. But I should be able to talk to the same language as like, let's say I'm the head of product and I've got a head of marketing um, and I got a head of CS. Like we should be speaking in the same language, which is like we continue to hear this problem with users. How would we solve that problem in my team versus your team versus, you know, my team versus your teams? And like, let's just brainstorm it. Like, I think I think that's the problem. Like, you know, just in, in you replaying the question for me to think of like what's happening in my universe right now. And like what's happening with teams right now is just I just think there's not enough space to brainstorm. There's just too much pressure to to move fast to ship tactical things. Like, hey, let's grab an hour, no boundaries. Let's just talk. What are eight ways we could solve this problem? Like, I want to hear from marketing. I want to hear from product. I want to hear from you know CS. We're just gonna build our ideas on top of each other, and we're gonna get like 15 ways we can solve a problem. And then we're gonna go through those ways and say like, what would be what's the level of effort to ship that to the market versus the other you know 11 ideas or whatever and you can get there together.
0: Got to go slow before you go fast and and make sure you're not like, I mean, you don't want to have decision paralysis, obviously, especially as a startup, but you want to make sure that you're not, you know, just grasping at straws and you have the proper, like you said, dashboards, feedback, you know, mechanisms that you can A-B test a lot of this stuff. But also I think an interesting thing we haven't talked about is like user segmentation. You know, how do you make sure that the segment of users that you are putting through different onboarding processes and experiences are one, the right ones. And two, make sure that, you know, they're a good example or a bad example that demonstrate different needs uh, within the product. And how do you kind of weigh those priorities? How should people think about user segmentation when doing this product-led growth and onboarding strategy?
1: My instinct is to subtract i remember like when i when i was building my startup i would get carried away with all the adjacent use cases and problems i could solve and like it, it's really good for vision but it's not practical in early stage like it's not practical at, at a tactical level because like you've got this big vision of like these users can benefit and these users could benefit and these users can benefit and then you start like you start building product because you're not you're not taking them one by one you're trying to solve for as many use cases as possible and so your product ends up feeling a bit Frankensteiny because you're trying to solve for too many things. So my recommendation to folks who are finding themselves in that moment is like, can you get more focus on a f- smaller segment of the mark of user problems to solve? As soon as I started talking to companies about user onboarding, a lot more interesting things were happening around me because I was getting f- more focused around a topic and onboarding user onboarding itself is a pretty broad topic also. But like there was just more it was I was just getting into more interesting conversations because I was getting more focused. And like the thing I learned in my own just like practice of talking about these topics is like more focus brought me more opportunities not less. But before I made the decision that I was like hey, I really like user onboarding as a topic and I want to talk about that. I had concern in the back of my mind that like I'm actually like narrowing my focus and I'm going to reduce the number of opportunities around me. That just has not been the true. So, I think there's a ton of value in like early stage to like focus. No one is taking your future away from you. But, like, the only way you'll get to the future is there needs to be, like, something you did really good right now that allows the future to exist. Very broad, you know, solving for multiple user segments and stuff like that. You can't even message to the market specifically. Like, when you get to a really tight user, it's really easy to find where they live. I want to talk to users who are, like, I want to talk to people who are currently challenged with scheduling. Okay, let's go one level deeper. I want to talk to doctors who are really challenged in scheduling. Okay, how would I find them? You know, I'm going to go on Google and I'm going to search all the doctors in my area. Like it's really easy to find out where those people are and start talking to them if you scale down. But if you scale up and say like, I want to help everybody who's got a scheduling problem, how do you find them? Well, some people I'm going I'm to do SEO and I'm going to do SEM and hopefully they'll bump into me and like they'll come to my website. So it's like the more you actually scale down, the easier it is to like even market.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because I've heard you say this to our, our companies at Ripple is don't do things that do scale as an early stage or precinct company. Actually don't do that because you're not ready for that. And also you're going to be hearing too much noise for what you can't even handle. So what other advice would you give for early stage startups, even like precinct companies now who've got, you know, their first sort of four or five design partners are starting to work with, like what type of things should they really be focusing on to give them that superpower?
1: My instinct is, like, if you're someone who wants to pursue venture, just don't worry too much about how you'll make money right now. Because, like, people only give you money at the other end of providing value. And if you don't know how your solution solves a problem better than how they're solving it today, then, like, it doesn't matter how you price. There's just, there's too many variables to manage in early stage. So if you could just cut some out and be like, hey, here's the things I'm just not going to care about, I think, like, the focus just gets tighter. Really understanding One, your motivation to do the thing you're doing. Like, if you're the entrepreneur, why am I doing this? Second is, what do I think I understand uniquely in the market? Third is, like, what's the thing that I believe that if other people believe what I believe, they're more likely to align to, like, the thing I'm trying to sell them, let's say. Like, every problem, like, I believe that most problems in the world are already solved. They are just not solved as well as they could be solved. That's why I go through this like mental model, like what's the problem? What's the current workaround? So how do you solve it today? What's the issues with the current workaround? The gap is the thing you fight. The the thing you attack is the, you, you solve a problem like this today. I believe that's not the right way to solve the problem because of A, B, and C. If you believe what I believe, come talk to me. I've got a really interesting product for you. And just getting really tight on that. Then people are like, oh, I really like the way you're solving that problem. I could never think about doing it Differently again. You know, a lot of it is like you watch like Clay Christensen's thing about, you know, why you hire a milkshake. I'm not sure if you know what I'm talking about, but he's like the guy who started Jobs to Be Done. His point of view on these things are just so refreshing. It's like, if I'm trying to sell you milkshakes, my competitive space is not other milkshakes. My competitive space are like people who eat bananas and people who eat um, bagels. The thing is, what was the problem you're trying to solve? I've got a very boring commute to work. How do you currently solve that problem with a bagel? What's the issue with that problem? it's too messy. Okay, so if you believe what I believe, which is bagels are too messy, you should come eat my milkshakes because they're not messy. And it's like you're, you're fighting the gap, the current workaround versus the issue of the current workaround, and just getting really
0: focused on that. No, oh, I love that too. And it's interesting because you would only uncover that by obviously speaking to enough people to narrow down on that problem they're facing. Because again, a lot of times startups end up going in, leading people with questions that I not kind of align with the problem they had obviously thought is their hypothesis and the solution they've already started building for. So they end up getting these like kind of shitty answers to justify what they believe is the problem. And that's something that we need to like break early on in a founder's mindset. But, you know, you talk a lot about sort of identifying pattern breaks with uh, founders in the early days and also doing things that don't scale. You know, one thing that I obviously hear a lot about is A-B testing. And um, people default to A B testing. What are your thoughts on that? You know, should it be something that early stage companies even think about doing, or is there a right time it should be brought into the process where you've got enough, obviously, data to A B test with?
1: I personally don't like A B testing, but I only, but the reason I don't like it is I think when people hear A B testing, they think about I'm going to have two running experiments in the market at the same time. I'm going to split kind of how many people see version A and version B, and I'll be able to learn something on the back of it. One is in early stage, especially it's like, you're not, you're hedging your experiment. Like you're, you're not boldly experimenting. This is like, and this is not my thing. Like I've heard other people like this other guy talk about experimenting boldly. And it's, it's so obvious when he tells you, he's basically, it's like, if you experiment boldly, you get the signal really fast. And that signal is it's a winning signal or it's a losing signal, but you'll get that. You'll get the result back in a week. But if you A-B test and you're waiting three weeks for a result, you literally wasted two weeks. His whole thing is like experiment boldly. So it's like put a thing into market, monitor how it performed relative to baseline. Because typically A-B testing comes out at the end of like, oh, I've already been doing a thing in market for a while. Now I want to A-B test new messaging. You don't need to A-B test new messaging. You have your existing messaging and you arguably know how it's performing. You're going to put a new message in the market, bold. And you're in one week, you'll know whether that message is better than the first message or not. If it's not, you revert. If it is, you keep the new one. But like you can move way faster by just being by more boldly experimenting. a B testing to me is like you're hedging and I think it usually comes from a, a place of fear for some reason.
0: This tug of war though between uh, speed to innovate on the product side and letting users have enough time in a product to give you feedback is something I struggle with a lot. Meaning like, I'm always looking to not put money or time into building new product until we've collected enough feedback and got enough rapid feedback. And, you know, sometimes founders say, no, 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 we want to innovate fast and then let the product be out there in the wild and let the feedback come back organically. How do you think about that? And kind of in creating a sense of urgency on the feedback side before you spend time and money on the product side? I think
1: there's a couple ways What comes to mind immediately is the diligence that should go into how you're thinking about the, about an experiment or whatever, a product before you launch it. I I mentioned before about like, how will I know that this thing works? I find that teams go, they, they're waiting too long. They're like, well, we know this thing, like we're going to launch a new experiment for like value prop, like we're going to change our value prop on the homepage Uh, I'm going to be a little extra, like I'll be a little extra for purpose of demonstration of the example, but like, we're going to launch the value prop on the homepage. How will you know it works? Um, when we, when we have an increased trial to paid conversion two weeks later, it's like, okay, like that could work, but like, what is the leading indicator to that? Like what would need to be true before that happened? Well, someone had to sign up. Okay. So what would be true before that? Well, someone would have to click the sign up button. Okay. Why are you telling me you're going to measure trial to paid conversion as a, measure of success of your copy on your webpage. I'm being
0: like uh, it's usually not that ridiculous. No, it's true. There's other things down the funnel that will give you the same answer, but much faster instead of waiting to get the answer you want that takes two or three weeks longer. I agree complete with with that. And it's ways that you should solve your 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 qualification criteria as well. Like the goal for top of funnel, let's say in, in marketing and and you know going from you know MQL to SQL, it's like you should be kicking out as many MQLs as possible so that the highest quality make it through to SQL, sales qualified leads, and then beyond into demo opportunities. And I think we're always like, no, no, let's let everyone through MQL, and then we'll let the SQL team figure it out. And then you start having this leaky bucket, which we all know is the worst problem to have.
1: I think it just comes down to to like how people want to measure There are ways to measure faster. Like for me, it's like, if I were to launch an experiment, how would I know within 24 hours if it's working? What would be the thing I would look for if I wanted to know? Being more critical and like harder on the composition of the experiment or the thing you're testing. I think the best opportunity for product people is to go spend weeks listening to how experienced salespeople run sales organizations. Because they're incredible at thinking about leading and lagging indicators. The lagging indicator is revenue. The leading indicator is pipeline. The leading indication of that is is how many phone calls you made. The leading indicator to that is like how many prospects you have. Sales organizations are so good at knowing what's the thing that has to happen today that gets me the thing thirty days from now. They're so good at it. They're better at any than any other discipline in the market. I attest so much of like my new perspective on on how to think about product by spending a bunch of time. Luckily, when I time a Shopify under really good sales leadership and really gr- amazing sales peers. We're just excellent at this stuff. I was like, okay, this is so clear to me how to think about leading and lagging indicators.
0: And like, it just, it becomes like tactically way easier to learn. Totally fantastic advice. You know, one last thing I got to ask, we're seeing such huge changes in the market, uh, obviously with AI and the ways that things are trying to be implemented on that side of things. You know, what advice are you're giving to your teams who are thinking about ways to incorporate you know, new market dynamics and applications into their product decision-making or growth strategies when maybe it's a little too premature. Is it, it back to, you know, first principles thinking just go slow to go fast, make sure you got enough feedback from users. What if your users don't know what they want yet? Because like, it's so new and you want to be six months ahead of the curve you got to build for it now when your product, uh, you know, can take time to Build and deploy it, and then your users maybe catch up when it's actually a real thing. That's the tug of war I always struggle with sometimes when founders want to do that because they know that's where the trend is going. But you know what? Maybe we'll save that for another podcast.
1: Sure. Yeah, man. Sorry, I don't have a great top of mind thing other than like try stuff and make it really easy on yourself to try something small.
0: Do that little like kind of breadcrumb exercise you said. Do like small iterations and test layer. You know, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So, first off, your favorite podcast.
1: Uh, I listen to the New York Times daily pretty much every day. So that one is probably my favorite because it gets the most attention from me.
0: Nice. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog? Uh,
1: I subscribe to this uh, newsletter. It's called the All-In Manager Newsletter. This guy, Ali, that I started following on LinkedIn. It's excellent. Every day I get like super digestible nugget of what it means to be a better leader.
0: It's exceptional. So he writes it on Substack or something? You subscribe to it? uh i just get it in my email fantastic i gotta check that out next is your favorite tech gadget um or most recently purchased I tech gadget
1: i i'm really enjoy. like honestly right now this very moment is a continuous blood glucose monitor
0: really you're using is it
1: levels uh no it's a dexcom g7 i'm just more playing with it okay but like i've got it connected right now and like i'm obsessed with reading the what are you seeing I I'm not sure. I find that I'm going to Google a lot trying to understand why the number keeps moving. It's like, "Hey, I just exercised. Is it normal for your blood glucose to go up?" "Hey, I just like I just got out of bed. Is it normal for your blood glucose to go up when you just get out of bed?" Like, it's actually a semi it's semi-debilitating. I feel like I'm being like blood glucose monitor shamed all day.
0: <laughs> I I've been wearing the Whoop wo- for a while and I felt the same way. There was just too much data. To, to kind of comprehend but it is pretty cool to see it when you figure it out next is your favorite new trend honestly
1: i don't know i'm not following any trends i've got two small kids at home and maybe a parenting trend Above which it's just like stop yelling at your kids i don't know that could be the, that's probably the right trend to follow
0: yeah best uh, best advice for negotiating with a toddler yeah that's yeah, the one we're learning about right go. now
1: there is no advice there is no
0: advice next uh, is your favorite book
1: there's a bunch, I would say, subtle art of not giving a fuck has been yeah. very impactful on how I think about life. Do you read it often? I quote it often. <laughs> to your kids? Uh, no, there's too much swearing.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe they'll grow into it one day. And next, or last but not least, is your favorite life lesson.
1: Uh, it's probably from the cellular I'm not giving a fuck. I think it was like when you're 14, you think everyone cares about you. When you're 40, you stop caring what everyone thinks. And when you're 60, you realize no one cared about you in the first place.
0: Oh, that's, but amazing. it, it sounds,
1: it sounds bad, but it is amazingly liberating on, you know, your psyche and your mental health. And it's not that no one cares about me. They are just worried about themselves. Like that's the reality. People worry about themselves. Yep. That's not a bad thing. That's just what it means to be human.
0: No, absolutely. Well, this has been fun. Thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Adam Jarzan.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague could benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.